renewed his people to their homeland. How God, we learned through the book of Ezra, reestablished the temple in Jerusalem. Reestablished the people of Israel back in their homeland. And we have been walking with Nehemiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of God, as they've been rebuilding the walls of the, temp- of the city. And we learned last week that the walls were finished in 52 days. They had a mind to work. They set their minds to work, and God blessed them abundantly. But one of the things that has become abundantly clear through all of this is that this work went on faithfully in the midst of great opposition. There has been opposition one right after the other, and we have tried to look at the various um, schemes of the enemy and see how and if they are applicable in our lives today, and certainly they are. And so this morning we come to a transition period in the work. We come to a transition period. I've titled this message, Necessities to Sustain the Work, but as we'll see in the first main point of the sermon, this is a very crucial time among the people of God. So we'll begin reading. We will not this morning read the entire chapter, although we will cover it, but let's read a few verses together, beginning in verse 1. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. And that's kind of the, the, that sets the mode for the entire chapter, okay? You notice I put that on the front of your bulletin. So when this had happened, this is the point. This is the place that they are at as a people. I had set up, the, the, the wall had been built. The doors were set in place. The gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut, the, shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, and the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea. And Judah, each to his own town. And then from verse 7 and following all the way over there to uh, verse 65, we have a list of the genealogy. Now, 
the, the leaders of the father's houses and those and the number of the people that came from that particular father's house from whatever tribe they were from. So let us just take a moment here and pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that we can open your word together. The inspired, inerrant, infallible, eternal word. Thank you for having these stories recorded and thank you for preserving them through the centuries so that we can stand here today and we can, under the hearing of your word, by the power of your spirit, be edified, built up, and changed. That we, this morning, can be equipped to stand faithful and to stand for your honor and glory and for the advancement of your mission in the world today. Help us, I pray, by the power of your presence. The internal testimony of your spirit. We need it desperately today. The needs in this room are wide and varying. And I pray that you would speak to every heart. Calling us to action. Calling us, if need be, to repentance. Calling us to faith. We pray through Christ and in his name. Amen. So we have reached a transition time. I have four headings to fly over our time this morning just to help organize our thoughts as we think about what we read and what is taking place in this story. The title, Necessities to Sustain the Work, and let me mention number one, a vulnerable spot. A vulnerable spot. As we read in those opening verses, we see that the wall has been built, the gates have been hung, there has been um, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites who were temple servants had been appointed and they have reached a vulnerable spot. And many of you may be there today and many of you may even be already ensnared because of a vulnerable spot in the past. This is a very crucial time in the story, and it is why we must pay careful attention to what happened and to what God gave to his, his man, Nehemiah, as we see in verse 5, then my God put it into my heart. So God is working through the man that he sent to lead them in a way that will be to the honor of God and the glory of God and for the good of the people and of the city. With the walls built, the gates hung, the gatekeepers and Levites appointed, in a very real sense, these people could have said, we have arrived. We're there. We're finished. I mean, for 52 days, we have been laboring. There has been countless hours given both to stand guard against the enemies who threatened to attack them. Hours spent in labor. Energy spent in labor. Money and riches spent in, in the materials that would be necessary to rebuild the walls and to 
rehang the doors and do all of this work. And they had worked tirelessly. And now it's done. The wall is built. The doors are there. We're done, right? It's a very vulnerable spot. When we feel as Christians even today that we have arrived at a place of comfort where we have arrived at a place where we could maybe possibly cut back a little and take our ease a little and kind of just enjoy things a little bit. Friends, you are in a very vulnerable spot. And certainly they were. To sit back and enjoy things. But this vulnerable spot is so because we as they have been commissioned by God. We as they are on mission with God. And thirdly, it is a vulnerable spot because we are at war. This, beloved, is not peacetime. Peacetime will happen when the Prince of Peace himself comes and rules and reigns from shore to shore in righteousness and justice and love and peace. That's coming, beloved, but it's not today. Today is war time. Let me ask you, before I said that, did you feel that way? When you think about the landscape of evangelical Christianity today, does it feel like wartime? You see, when God blesses a nation, or when God blesses His people, the Israelites in our story, or today His church, with prosperity and a certain amount of comfort and stability, it is a very vulnerable spot. This was the problem in David's time. You remember King David in Second Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. If you'd go home and look at that, you would see that David reached this very particular kind of vulnerable spot in his life. And he became vulnerable because he had been established as the king. Oh, my friends, David had a struggle. Those of you who know the history of the Bible and and have familiarity with King David, he was anointed king by the prophet long before he ever ruled the people. Because King Saul was on the throne and Saul didn't want to give up the throne. And David was chased and David was harassed and he was under the threat of death every hour of every day for a long period of time. And he had labored and he had prayed and he had hid and he had done what he had to do to survive. And now he's king. Now it's all established and he's arrived. (laughs) And he reached that vulnerable spot. And the Bible tells us in the story of David there in 2 Samuel 11, 1 and 2. That as they went out to fight. As the army of Israel went out to fight. David stayed home. He didn't need to go anymore. He didn't need to fight. He was king. His people were adequate to go and fight. 
So he stayed home. He relaxed. He sat back on and took his ease. And he fell into the snare of the devil. He fell into the snare of his own impulsive nature of sin within his flesh. He saw a woman. And he pursued that woman. And it led him to conspire to have a man killed. Committing adultery. Mm. He was at a vulnerable place. This is what Jesus warned us about in Matthew 26, 41. When he said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. (laughs) You remember the word that we learned last week? The word was what? Vigilant. Be vigilant, be carefully watching, on guard, alert, because there are many enemies against us. This is war time, my friends. We are in a battle as the people of God against the flesh, against the world, and against the devil. And we looked at those things in a little bit more detail than what we will this morning. But suffice it for me to just point you to a couple of scriptures along that regard. I already read to you in Matthew 26, 41 about how we are at war with our own sinful nature. Which is coined in the scriptures in the New Testament as the flesh. It's not talking about my skin. But it's talking about the nature of sin that resides within all of us. None of us this morning in this room and no person on this earth today is exempt from this battle. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 verses 12 and 13. So then brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But... If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Does that sound like warfare? Killing the flesh. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're in a warfare against our nature of sin. The world also, and we have to be very careful here. When I speak about the world and when the Bible speaks about the world, it's not talking about the ground upon which you walk. But it's talking about the world of unbelievers who live by a different worldview than the people of God. They live by a different philosophy of life. And as such, they are the enemies of God. And as such, they are also the enemy to the church. But we have to be careful when we talk about the warfare with the world. Because the, world, the, the warfare with the world is not a warfare that is fought by physical means. In other words, we're not to go out with swords and guns and try to subdue the world to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Rather, our battle is spiritual even in that If you think about it, in Matthew 24, verses 9 to 14, Jesus was warning his disciples and 
After many years, we can still hear this warning ring clear to us. He says in Matthew 24, verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel, this good news of the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. There is a warfare, my friends. Against the church of Jesus Christ by the unbelieving world. And as we mentioned, the third enemy of the church and of the Christian is the enemy of Satan and demon spirits who are behind it all. They use our flesh against us, the nature of sin. Satan works in the unbeliever's heart, not only to blind them from the truth, but also to wage war against the church. But it is a spiritual battle. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So our main enemy is not the unbelieving world. The way we engage with the world is with, listen, the truth. The way you engage the world and the philosophies that are wrong is with the truth. And secondly, with the love of Christ. And thirdly, with prayer. And fourthly, with the explicit proclamation from a loving heart, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And here he says it very explicitly, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They had reached a vulnerable spot because it was a spot at which they could take ease and sit back in their easy chair. And if they had done that, their enemies were waiting. To rush in and destroy what they had already accomplished. And I assure you this morning, Satan rests not to find you at that vulnerable moment where you kick the the gear shift of your life into neutral and he will be there waiting and ready to attack and hit you at that time. But as they had in Nehemiah's day, we have today a mission, and that mission is not finished. (laughs) That mission is to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and to disciple all of those who believe. And that job is not finished. It is not finished There are over 2 million people on the planet, give or take. There's a whole bunch of them 
who don't even live in a place where they can hear the gospel proclaimed. The mission is not finished. And if we as a church this morning reach this vulnerable spot, and I fear that many have already been ensnared and sit back, Satan is glad and we will give an account for what we have done with the mission that God has entrusted to us. Well, in this vulnerable spot, we see God move through his man to provide two primary needs we see in the text. In verse 2, I want you to see that he provided the need for stable, God-fearing leadership. Stable, God-fearing leadership. There was a need for that. And Nehemiah was a good leader. He was a godly leader. And he saw that there was a transition. He had come and he had he had helped them to rebuild the wall. That's what he wanted to do, to see the city fortified. The walls were built now and he knew it was time for him to begin to fade to the background. Because he had promised the king that he would come back. He would not stay in Jerusalem. But he would see this project through. And then he would begin to step back. And this transition would happen as he delegated to God-fearing, faithful men who would take over the leadership of the people of God. And that, by the way, was the criterion on which they were selected. Verse 2 says that they were to be faithful and God-fearing. Faithful and God-fearing. Why would you need to be God-fearing? You would need to be God-fearing because if you are not God-fearing, what do you suppose you would be? (laughs) How about people-fearing? And if you are a people-pleasing person, you cannot fit the other criteria. What was it? Faithful. If you are a people-pleasing person, you cannot be faithful to God. We must be God-fearing. We must have a reverential fear of the Almighty God. We must tremble at the sheer knowledge given in His Word of His holiness, of His justice, of His power. And we must have a desire to please Him in all things. The second need that was, that was given and provided through the leadership of Nehemiah was the need for gatekeepers. And I thought about this as I was studying this text. We we could probably camp out on this idea of gatekeepers, but I'm not going to. Suffice it to say that there was need to have people on guard concerning who comes in and who goes out and when this happens. So just, just think about that today and see if there's not an application to the church today. Who comes in and who goes out and when? There was need after the walls had been built, after the gates had been hung, and everything was encircled, everything was fortified, but there were doors that can be opened. There were gates that could be opened, and those gates were not to be opened, as we noticed in the first few verses here, at just any time. There was a need to guard the gates. 
And my friend, there is a need today that is no less significant and maybe even more so in our day and in our age. That we would be able to guard the gates of the work of God through His church. Faithful, God-fearing leadership and gatekeeper. Someone to lead and to oversee those who watch out for the welfare of the city. And so that's number one, this vulnerable spot. Number two, we're talking about the needs to sustain the work. The work had been accomplished in the rebuilding of the walls. Now what they had built needed to be sustained. And at that vulnerable place, there was given to them faithful, God-fearing leaders. And there was given to them gatekeepers who would help to watch out for the welfare of the city and of the people of God. Second statement. We see that the need has been provided of a wise, God-given, shepherding decision. So I want to think about those words. A wise, God-given, shepherding decision. If you look in verses 5 all the way to verse 60, as we read verses 5 and following together, it is a God-given decision because he says in verse 5, God put it into his heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And so this was a, this was a wise decision, it was a God-given decision, and it was a shepherding decision. Why so? Because... This was wise because it was much needed organization. It was God given for the reasons that we pointed out explicitly from verse 5. And it was a shepherding decision because there was need, there was a need to know who was in the group and the condition of those people within the group. That good records would be kept for the future of the people of God. And so that the, the work could be sustained. Because, very simply put, you cannot give an account for people that you do not know. And you cannot care for them properly if you don't know about their condition. Oh, my friends, that is so applicable to the church today. If you ask me, well, where is church membership in the Bible? I would point to many places, and we'll do that later on. But this morning, I see it even in this text. Because the leaders of the people of God had to know who was in and who was not. Their names were given. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, what do we find? Lists. After list, after list, there was list of widows. There was list of those who were being cared for in the church. There was lists made in the New Testament church. There's lists constantly in the Old Testament. Why? Because the leaders needed to know the who was in the people of God and what what is going on with them in order to care for them properly, in order for them to give an account for their leadership over them. Let me go a step further and take you to the book of Acts chapter 20 at this point and look in verses 28 and following. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 32, we see the Apostle Paul is going to to leave the church of Ephesus. And he's on his way to Jerusalem where he has nothing uh, to expect but more persecution and probably imprisonment and death. And he goes to to the leadership of the church. The elders, the pastors, there were several of them. 
And, and he gives them instructions. And I want you to notice here what he tells them. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And just stop there and ask yourself a question. If you were to go to those same elders and say, if you are going to be held accountable, which we'll read in here in a moment. But if you, if you have a flock over which you've been made an overseer, let me ask you a question. How do you know who's in the flock that you are overseeing and who's not in the flock that you're overseeing? How are you going to answer that? So just because we don't see the word membership in the Bible doesn't mean the concept is not there. How do I, let's make it very personal. How do I as a pastor of this church know who I am to oversee as the flock? Read it again. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. How do I know who is a part of that flock and who is not? Everyone that visits this Church, at any given time, am I responsible for them? Am I going to give an account for them? Or is there, does there not need to be some practical way in which I as a pastor and you as a, as a member or as a, uh, a sheep in the flock know this is who God has made the overseer and this, I am a part of that flock. There needs to be a way, my friends. And so that's kind of a little bit excursion, but I want to go on and read more. He says, which he obtained with his own blood, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is why it was important. Why? Because Jesus Christ, God the Son, purchased the church with his own blood. Secondly, he knows that there is going to be some who will come in as wolves who will not spare the flock. And from among your own selves, he says in verse 30, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, here's that word, be vigilant. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease. There's no cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And I now commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so it's the same situation in the New Testament that we see in Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 5. Or rather, verses 1 through 4. Namely, that Paul had been there. He had been leading them. He had been teaching them. And now it was time for him to fade. And these leaders were to step up. And they were to be faithful, God-fearing men who would carry on the work of the ministry. You see it? In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17... It is a very powerful verse for every man who has been called to be a pastor of a local church. And I want you to see it with your own eyes. So if you've drifted off, would you turn to Hebrews thirteen seventeen? This is a verse that I think of probably on a, at least a weekly basis. And you'll see why here in a moment. It's not addressed to pastors, but it speaks to them indirectly in a very powerful way. It's actually speaking to the church, to the flock. He says in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them. And then he gives a reason for that submission and obedience. For they are 
keeping watch over your souls. And here it is. As those who will have to give an account. Account for who? You see why it was a wise, God-given, shepherding decision that Nehemiah made. Let's see who we have here. Let's understand who's here. Let's understand what family they come from. And even today, we must do the same. Number three. The third need that has been provided in this time to sustain the work is a good yet difficult decision. You ever had to make one of those? A good yet difficult decision. If we turn back to Nehemiah 7, you'll notice in verses 61 down to 65. 61. The following, he gives a list. The following were those who came up from Telmela and these other places. But it says they could not prove their father's houses, nor their descent, whether they belong to Israel. And then he gives a list. And he says also in verse 63, also the priests. So there were some who were saying, we are of the lineage of the priests. But verse 64, these sought the registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So here's the decision. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. So we have a good (laughs) yet difficult decision. Now, why do you think that was difficult? Because we're dealing with people. People that no doubt had contributed to the work. People who who no doubt were well known within the city. People who no doubt uh, may have even had influence and abilities. And yet, as they make their claim to be of the lineage of the priests and to be descendants from Israel, they could not prove it. And therefore, it was crunch time again. They were in a vulnerable spot again. And Nehemiah and the governor that was appointed made a good yet difficult decision. Beloved, we must always be careful to fear God rather than people. And you probably deal with that in its various nuances every day. Whether you should bow your head maybe at lunchtime or whether you should go along with the laughter in the break room or whether you should go along with Uh, The things that are happening when your family is getting ready to get together for uh, some activity or some celebration of some sort. And you think with me this morning how you might be in a position to want to please people. But in the recesses of your mind, you know that it would be it would mean that you would be compromising the word of God. You see, God was very specific. That no one was to serve as a priest to the people of God unless he could trace his lineage back to Aaron and his sons. And so these people wanted to be registered. And they wanted to partake in the most holy things of the people of God. And we must always be motivated to honor God, not to please the wants of other people. 
And I deal with that on a daily basis. I'm sure you do. And pastors, you need to pray for pastors, beloved. You need to pray for pastors all over the world because they face pressure every single week of their life in their ministry to give in to what people want, even though it might mean compromising the Word of God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29 in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Peter answering those who are putting pressure on him and the other apostles to stop preaching Jesus. Do we not have the same cry in our, in our world today and in our nation today? <laughs> if you don't know that that's the same cry in our world today, you need to open your eyes and you need to open your ears because there are multitudes of people today who are crying the same thing. Stop preaching Jesus. And he responds to them, and we must respond likewise. We must obey God rather than men. And so as we carry on the work of God, we must remember that it is not about whether we like someone. It is not about whether a person may bring to our church something that would be beneficial maybe. In terms of abilities or riches or reputation. But it is about the honor of God. And the only way to remain faithful to God is to be faithful to His eternal Word. The work of the Lord in Nehemiah's day and the work of the Lord in our day is not about ultimately about us. It is about God. Why was it necessary? What, what, what good is it to build walls and have gates? <laughs> what good is that? Answer? That was the city of God. It was the city where God had placed His name. It, it, it was the place where the people of God gathered for worship. It was, significant, it was significant because the people of Israel were to be a revelation, as it were, or, or rather a, uh, a, a mirror of the majesty of God, the glory of God. They were to live in a way, according to the law that He'd given through Moses, that would make them distinct among all the nations of the world. They were to live in a way that would, would exemplify the character of God, the nature of God, the holiness of God. When all the other nations looked at Jerusalem, they were to see a people that were set apart, sanctified to God for the glory of God. And living in a way that was unlike any other nation of the world so that all the other nations would look and see and know that there is a God in heaven. And this is what he demands. And this is what he is like. So the walls, my friends, and the gates, they were only a means to an end. It's the same way with us. You and I are called to live separate and distinct from the world. So that the world will see and know what the grace of God can do in the life of a sinner. And so he made a good and yet difficult decision. Number four, and finally, this is the last one. A generous and necessary contribution. A generous and necessary contribution. Verses 66 to 73. I spoke earlier about leadership. We're going to speak now about contributions. Let me say something. Just because there have been men and women and churches who have abused leadership 
and have abused the commands in Scripture to give does not mean that we should neglect the Scriptures about leadership and giving. Would you, would you agree with that? Just because someone else says in a corrupted manner has abused people with leadership and has manipulated and extorted people of their, of their money does not mean that every leader is bad. And it does not mean that every scripture can be tossed out that deals with giving. Let's look at it. Verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were six, uh, 736, their mules 245, their camels three, uh, 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Well, what's the significance of that? Because all of that stuff is needed to carry on the work. You understand? All of this is a picture of how to sustain the work of God in their day. All of that was needed. And all of that came from someone else. <laughs> God provides the means to sustain His work through the faithfulness of His people. That's how it happens. That's why we don't have... And I'm not knocking you. If you're from another church and you do this, I'm not saying that, that you know this can't be sanctified. But that's the reason that we don't have bake sales and stuff like that. Because the primary way that you read in the Scriptures that God sustains the work... Of his people, the church, is through the faithfulness of its members. That's how it happens. And when when the people of God are filled as they were, I gave you that little catchphrase to put down point number four, a generous and necessary contribution. When the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God and motivated by the truth and the desire to fulfill the commission of God, they give. They give. It, it just It just happens. <laughs> it's 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 like it's like seeing God and worshiping Him. It it just happens. You know you don't have to you don't have to coerce it. it. Just happens. These people were so happy to be back in Jerusalem. They were so happy to see the temple rebuilt. They were so happy that the walls had been rebuilt and the gates had been hung and the leaders had been appointed and they were there. And now what? The work has to go on. Because all of that was a means to get them to this moment. So that now they could make disciples of their children. They could bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And this would not happen without the faithfulness of the inhabitants of the people of God. This would not happen without their faithfulness to give. The temple needed to be in operation the sacrifices needed to continue so that they could carry on the worship of the God of heaven. The priests and the Levites needed to remain on task and supplied to do the work to which they had been called and commissioned. The worship of God and the good of the people of God depended upon it. Can you imagine going to the, uh, the, the temple complex and you have broken the, one of the commandments of God and God has revealed uh, this guilt in your life and you are just burdened. You are so burdened because you know you've broken the commandments of God and you know that the Word of God instructs you to go to the temple and to bring your sacrifice for guilt and to give it there to the priest and there's no priest. There's no Levites. There's nobody there. The doors are shut. They're locked. Nobody's there. What are you going to do? 
That's why it was important. That's why it was important. They needed to be on task to the mission that they were called and commissioned. And the worship of God and the good of the people depended upon it. There were roles then and roles today that need to be fulfilled in terms of services needed to sustain a faithful gospel ministry. And finances needed to carry on the work of God as He has commissioned us and commanded us in Scripture. Let me take you to an example as we close in Acts chapter 2. We'll let this close us out and we'll let this be an example of what we see in Nehemiah. The people of God so happy, so full of the joy of the Lord and the work of the Lord that they become so unified, so loving of one another, so caring of one another, so concerned that the mission of the work of the Lord would go forward and not skip a beat. That they literally considered themselves not to actually own anything. Listen to Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship. To the breaking of bread and of prayers. And all. A-W-E. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And here it is. And all who believed were together. They were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. If they had a need, if somebody had a need, say a a, a single mother doesn't have a car and you've got three, this text the implication of it is they say, well, I've got three and you don't have any. I'll give you one of mine. That's what we're reading. Distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with, listen to this description, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God loves. You can finish it for me. A cheerful giver. When we read a story like Nehemiah. And we see how in the book of Acts. You realize it's always one big story, don't you? That they were called and commissioned to fulfill the work that God had gave them to be the people of God. To love God and to keep His commandments. It's no different today. It's no different today. These same things are needed today as they were then. Let's pray together.